0: You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Carlisle. In this series, we are following Jesus and learning what it means to take on his yoke. We are pressing into his promise of true life. Peace be with you. Man, it's a joy to be here with you all. So welcome back. Yeah. Um, the last time we, we actually gathered in this space was um, March 8th, which is crazy. It's 207 days ago, if you're keeping count. Um, our society has changed. Our church has changed. We have changed as people. I had one less kid then, too, and was sleeping really good, but that's neither here nor there. Um, I really am. I'm thankful to be back in here with you all. Uh, for the, fa- the past few weeks, we as um, pastors and staff have been praying and asking that God would make this space um, feel like home, feel like a refuge, if you will, right? I know coming in, doing new things, new protocols, wearing masks, all this stuff, right? It can make it feel like less than home. But the hope that this physical place would feel like coming home again so even now, um, I want to invite us uh, to pray that prayer. And we do ask, and we, we, we hope that, um, yeah, when we gather together here, that it would feel like a sense of comfort, a sense of coming home, reinvigorate our souls. So before we uh, begin looking at our text today, I just want to take some time to pray for us um, to that end. So let's pray. God, though... Uh, Often we don't acknowledge it. Our physical um, places matter. Our physical places that we indwell and inhabit and frequent, they they speak to us. They, They carry stories, good and bad. They can carry lament and hope. They can carry death and life. We ask God that, man, as, as we're here today, that this place would be a, a place of hope, of refuge. That though, God, our, our ultimate comfort is found in Christ, that we would feel a sense of peace here in this place this morning as we worship Him. Pray, God, uh, that you would be with us as we study your word, that your spirit would speak to us in new and in fresh ways. Above all else, God, we pray that you would be honored and glorified by the preaching of your word. We ask that you would speak to us this morning, God. Our hearts are open, our ears are open. Please mold us and shape us how you will. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, so if you're new here or haven't been in a little while, we're continuing on in our sermon series in Matthew. Um, last week, we looked at the parable of the vineyard workers, and one of the big takeaways that we, that we learned was that God's grace is surprising and more abundant than anybody expects. We saw in it that God's rewards, are, they're not according, according to, to human and earthly measures. And this week, we're actually going to pick up on a similar theme. King Jesus today is going to talk about how greatness is measured in the kingdom. And spoiler alert, it's different than the way the earth and earthly people assess greatness. Um, So since we don't have bulletins this week, if you're a note taker, um, my outline will be up here on the screen. So feel free to jot it down. Here's what we're going to look at today. First, we're going to see that King Jesus predicts his death for the third and final time. See that in verses 17 through 19. Um, Verses 20 through 28, that King Jesus defines or redefines greatness. Then we'll see that King Jesus models service. And then lastly, we'll turn to some application points. I don't think I... Oh yeah, I did put those up there. Um, So we'll see the call to serve. And most importantly, the call to the source of our service. So first, if you would uh, look with me at verses uh, 17 through 19, we see that King Jesus predicts his death. So so Matthew and and other Jewish writers, um, numbers matter to them, right? They're not just like arbitrarily writing um, Jesus's predictions or things like that. Um, So this is actually the third and final prediction of Jesus's death that we see. The number three, all throughout scriptures, is a point of emphasis. So there, there weren't italics back in the Bible, okay? So if you wanted to emphasize something, you said it multiple times, okay? In modern speeches, you know, that's called parallel, parallelism, right? Think of the I have a dream speech as one example. But so the Jewish writers, they, they would write in threes to emphasize a point. So this is the third and final prediction we see of Jesus's death. So it's really important. This is the third time he brings it up. So he's trying to emphasize to, to us as the readers and his disciples, this, this is going to happen, guys. This is, this is a thing. If you remember back in Matthew 16, 21, um, it said, from then on, Jesus began to point to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and be raised on the third day. So that was the first prediction. Then he predicts it again very similarly in Matthew 17, 22 to 23. You can go check that out later. But it's important to note that um, the verses that we're looking at today, in a sense, are closing one section of Matthew and setting us up for a new section of Matthew. Jesus, in his first prediction, he said, we are going to go to Jerusalem. That was the start of their journey towards Jerusalem. Today, we actually see that, that they're basically there, right? Okay, if you've ever driven in on, on 65, maybe after a long road trip, you hit Shelbyville and you're like, oh, we're home. It's like, well, you still have 20 minutes, so you're not home yet, but you're basically there, right? That's, that's where we're at in the story, okay? We're not actually in Jerusalem yet, but, but we're pretty much there. So the, the end of these verses that we're going to look at today are the close of one section, and then we'll see, starting in, in uh, chapter 21 through 28, things are going to slow way, way down. And over those last chapters, even though we've looked at several years of, or a few years of Jesus' ministry up until this point, in chapters 21 through 28, it actually only covers the last week of his life. So it's a new section, Matthew. Now, each prediction, Jesus has added a little bit more to um, show more details of what's going to happen to him. So if we look again um, today at the text, the emphasis that he's showing is that not just, we saw that um, he says the chief priests and scribes, the, the religious leaders of his day, were going to hand him over to death. But then he adds that they are going to hand him over to the Gentiles. The religious leaders are going to take Jesus, try him, and hand him over to the secular leaders in government. This is what it says in Matthew uh, 20, 18 through 19. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief Priests and scribes think think religious leaders of the day, and they will condemn him to death. Verse 19, they will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised. So imagine this, the the disciples are hearing that the, the leaders of their religion are going to take the one that they are following faithfully, who they believe to be the king, the Messiah, the religious leaders of their day are gonna take him, turn him over to secular authorities for him to be tried to death. It's not one to one, but but think the pastors and ministers are going to take the man that you are following, hand him over to secular authorities, and let them kill him. This is really weighty for the final prediction. These religious leaders, these were the guys that the disciples probably learned how to teach, or they listened to them teach. They learned from them how to pray. And these are the guys guys that they maybe looked up to spiritually. And those were the people that were going to hand over the one that they were following, who they'd been journeying with for years now. But they still, they, they don't really get what Jesus is saying, Right? We see that because here in this next scene where we see uh, Jesus defining greatness in verses 20 through uh, 28, there's a little bit of a a misreading of the room, okay? (laughs) Jesus predicts his death, and then uh, the sons of Zebedee's mother then comes in and is like, hey, let me ask you a question. So in this interaction, we, we have Jesus, we have two of his closest disciples, James and John, and their mother, um, the, the famous Renaissance painting, uh, painter, sorry, Paolo Veronese, he actually has a painting about this account. So just to stir up some imagination within you, I want to put it up on the screen. So Emma, you can put it up and just leave it there um, until we get to the next slide. Um, I can't interpret art, and I Googled a lot, and there's not a lot of interpretation on this, so sorry if it's, uh, this, it probably says something way deeper than I understand. Bradley Speaks, who, um, shameless plug, I don't think he's in here. Did great work on the gallery, um, setting that up yesterday. But he, I didn't see this. He's a genius. I'm not. He's like, why is the mother's face darker than all the other people? I don't know. Pray about it. Figure it out. Anyways, all right. So, so here's, as this is up there, I just, I just kind of want to paint a picture for you, right? The, the sons of Zebedee, this, James and John, okay? Um, for whatever reason, Jesus has given them this awesome nickname. They're called the Sons of Thunder, Okay, that can be your next softball team if you want to use that. But look at Mark 3, 17, right? They're called the Sons of Thunder for some reason. They're part of Jesus' inner circle, okay? So Jesus had his 12 disciples, and then he had three guys that he hung out with way more, okay? They were kind of like a, a closer friend group, if you will, uh, of, of this bigger group. So it was James, John, and Peter, who is known as The Rock. Jesus loved giving cool nicknames. Um, so these guys, James and John, are really close to Jesus, What's interesting is that we actually know from elsewhere in Scripture that they are his cousins. So the mother of Zebedee is actually sisters with Jesus' mother, okay? So he predicts his death. On Zebedee can't read the room. She says, hey, let me ask you something. She approaches Jesus. We don't know why she's present or why in this account she's the one that asks the question, okay? And Mark James and John actually asked the question themselves. That, that doesn't mean Scripture is like speaking against each other, okay? If, um, if you get an email from me, and it's like the pastors uh, ask you to wear masks in the sanctuary, you could say the pastors ask you to wear masks in the sanctuary, or Nick emailed us and asked us to wear masks in the sanctuary, right? It doesn't—they're it doesn't, not conflicting each other, okay? Nonetheless, I think it's appropriate for us to see that James and John are the source— Of the question, but even still, uh, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, she comes, she kneels down, she's showing reverence. And Jesus asks her, "She, what do you, what do you want? What are, what are you here to ask me?" And here's what she does. She asks that her son, her sons, excuse me, could sit on the right, my right, your left, the right and the left of Jesus in the kingdom. Could they sit in the seats of honor? They clearly, they clearly do not fully understand what Jesus has been teaching about the kingdom and how um, greatness is found in the kingdom, all right? He's been teaching them for a long time, specifically in the last couple chapters, so they really don't get it. But before we get too down on them, there are a couple positive things that we can look and, and see how they're responding. First, the mother does come reverentially, right? She comes down kneeling, asking in a way that honors Jesus. And then secondly, they are asking that they can sit in the best thrones or the best seats in the kingdom. So if you remember a few weeks ago when we looked at Matthew 19 through 28, Jesus does promise the disciples when they ask. He promises them that they will sit in 12 thrones. So again, even though they're a little bit off, they actually do believe that Jesus is going to bring back his kingdom and inaugurate his kingdom. So they do have great faith that he is going to fulfill the promises that he's made. So they're they're partially right, but they're mostly wrong, okay? They still don't totally understand what kingdom greatness is or what it means. They're still seeking to find greatness through earthly means, through their titles, through how close they are to how they can buddy up next to King Jesus. So Jesus, he responds graciously to them. He says, guys, you you don't know what you're asking. You, You don't get it. Then he asked him, Are you able to drink the cup? So the the reference to the cup here, it's an important figure of speech in scripture. It represents the experience of suffering under God's wrath. One of the places that we see it most notably is in Psalm seventy-five, verses seven through eight. The psalmist writes, It is God alone who judges. He decides who will rise and who will fall. For the Lord holds a cup in his hand that is full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours out the wine in judgment and all the wicked must drink it, draining it to the dregs. So we see this idea all throughout scripture of this cup of judgment. Jesus is saying, guys, you you can't, you can't really fully drink the cup. It's interesting, though, that Jesus, in a sense, says you can't. We'll talk about that. But he says you can, right? They can't because they can't ever fully satisfy. They can't take on the judgment that only God can handle. No man, in an earthly sense, can can handle the weight of God's judgment fully. So they can't. They can't drink the cup. But in another sense, they, they can and they do, right? He says you will drink the cup. When he tells them that they will drink the cup, he's talking about the path to suffering that Jesus himself models. We know that both of these men, in a sense, drink the cup, following in the path of Jesus' suffering. We see in Acts 12, too, that James is one of the first Christian martyrs. He dies by the sword for his faith. And John, though he he isn't martyred, He is sent out and put in prison on an island. He's marooned. So they can't drink the cup fully, right? But they can drink the cup by following the path that Jesus has laid out for them. The cup here, it represents a a way of life, right? It's not about getting a good seat at the kingdom dinner table. It's about suffering and lowliness, hardship and trials, Jesus says they can't drink the cup, but they can in a sense, or they will drink the cup. But then he goes on and he tells them, it's not my job to give those seats away. If you see there in verse 23, it says, "Um, instead, sorry, you will indeed drink my cup, but to sit at my right and left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Now, we, we don't have time to really dive full into this, but this is a really important theological truth. Jesus here is showing that he does have human limitations. Okay, when Jesus took on humanity, when God put on flesh, it wasn't some, some act, okay? He wasn't putting on a Halloween costume. He, he really took on humanity. He is fully God and fully man. And in this passage, we see that he's admitting to that humanly Uh, limitation, if you will, right? He says, that's not my job. I didn't assign that. We also in it see that God, or Jesus, is in the Trinity eternally subordinate to the Father. That doesn't mean he's less than God, but he's subordinate to the Father in this particular aspect. Okay, God the Father has set out a plan, and Jesus is humbly obeying it. So he says, those seats aren't mine to give away. So they've, they've miscalculated, okay? James and John, they, they don't get it. They, they don't understand what greatness in the kingdom is. But we see that they're not alone, right? Look at verse 24. It says, when the, dis- the 10 disciples heard this, they became indignant, with the two brothers for asking that question. So Thomas and Thaddeus, they're like over in the corner. Thomas is like, Thad, Thad, did you hear what they just said? Did you hear that? Those are our seats. We talked to Jesus about those seats, right? So they're mad at these guys because they want to sit in those seats. So they all don't get it. They all are misunderstanding kingdom greatness, So Jesus, he, he, he calms down the troops. He gathers them together. He, he graciously walks them through this. Like he always does, right? The disciples are dense, but so are we. God is gracious to them, just as he's gracious to us. Yes and amen. And he tells them what the, the kingdom is really like, what greatness is in the kingdom. He says to his disciples, guys, you, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles Lord it over them. And those in high positions act as tyrants over them. It must not be like that among you. Jesus says, Away with, with all these trivial hierarchies, guys. Quit stepping on each other as you try to climb some earthly ladder. He says, you guys have experienced this, right? You know this. You see how earthly rulers are. He's like, anyone, anyone in here, no, no, don't raise your hand, but anyone got a, a, a bad boss, right? It's like, you've seen this. You know this is what he's telling his disciples. So God, God's standard for greatness, it's not measured in the same way. He says, guys, as, as citizens of my kingdom, here's what it should look like. This is what Jesus tells them in verse 26. He says, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servants. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Um, I, just, uh, I just actually finished up an autobiography by Steve Martin called Born Standing Up, um, and he has this great line in there that I actually think kind of applies to this situation. He says, I've heard the argument that celebrities want fame when it's useful, think greatness, and don't when it's not. And then he says that argument is absolutely true. So celebrities want Greatness when it's useful and don't when it's not. Martin was basically, see, Martin was basically saying that he loved being famous, he loved being great when it afforded him great things. When he got to go to restaurants and it was full, but somehow they found a table for him. Or when it afforded him the opportunity to meet famous comedians that he grew up idolizing. So being famous is, is great when it's great, but it's not when it's not, right? So he talked about how challenging it was to not be able to go anywhere without being asked for an autograph or not being able to have any personal interactions without someone uh, essentially trying to imitate him and do their best Steve Martin impression. I think the disciples are in a similar place, right? They, they love to be associated with King Jesus when it means they, they get honor and power, right? When there's 5,000 people watching Jesus teach and then he's got his 12 guys right there, you know, like they feel cool. But as we see later in Matthew, when, when their lives are threatened or their personal comfort is at stake, being close to the king isn't so great. And they bail. G- Jesus' path to kingdom greatness is actually downwards. That's the thing that we miss. The path upward is downward, okay? The path of increasing greatness is actually increasing lowliness. The, the path to getting the recognition of the CEO is doing the work of a custodian, is what Jesus is telling them. Why, why is that? Why does it work? Well, because that's the very path that he himself followed. The disciples, they, they, they won't see the full extent of the service that Jesus calls them to for, for a little bit longer until they see him crucified. But even still, he's, he's modeled to them in other ways what kingdom greatness looks like and showing them how to serve. And we, we even see that right here in this last little picture that we see in this section. So again, in verse 30 through 34, we see that King uh, King Jesus models service. So they're, they're on their final stretch into town, right? They're between Shelbyville and Louisville. And then we see that there are two blind men sitting by the road. When they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd demanded that they keep quiet. Guys, stop. You're embarrassing yourselves. But they cried out louder, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. These men, they would have been low on the totem pole, right? They were social outcasts, social pariahs. They're, they're out there. They're debilitated, which in, in this time, people saw disabilities as a curse from God. The, grou- the crowd has deemed them so unimportant that they, they don't even have a voice. They say, be quiet, please. The king is coming. But the blind men, they, they just yell louder. They're crying out, out of their lowliness. Verse 32, Jesus stopped, called them and said, what, what do you want me to do for you? Verse 33, Lord, they, they said to him, open our eyes. King Jesus, he's not a, a hardened ruler, He's not the mean boss that cares whether or not you want a couple days off, right? Verse 34 says, moved with compassion. The the Greek word there is like, it it actually is from your bowels. (laughs) He was moved in his gut with compassion for these men. And then it says, Jesus touched their eyes. He touched these probably dirty, beggars, these social outcasts, he reached down and touched them, and immediately they could see, and then they followed him. Now, a couple things are interesting here in this final account that Jesus gives us of his serving. One of the big things is that these blind men use both the Jewish term for Jesus—son of David means Messiah— So this is what all the disciples, the insiders, would have used. And then they used the outsider term for Jesus, the term that the Greeks used. They said, Lord, help us see. So what's what's crazy about this is that the men who physically cannot see Jesus see him the most. While his disciples who have been hanging out with him and physically see him seem to see him metaphorically the least. These blind men, they, they get it. They know that Jesus is the one that's going to heal them. So they're throwing out all the terms. They're like, we'll use Messiah, son of David, Lord. They know who he is. They, they really see him. And Jesus responds. The, the future King, okay, he's the future King Jesus. He shows here, he, he's not too proud to get his hands dirty. He's not too haughty to care for the down and out. He shows his disciple what it looks like to love and serve all. See, the, the path, the, what we see in this text here is that the path to greatness is different in God's kingdom. And that now we, bringing it to us as kingdom citizens, we must follow that same path. The very idea of following somebody is you are walking on the path behind them. That means what Jesus did, we should do. (laughs) So, what does this text call us to then? I think the the call to some is going to be different than the call to others. For some, the call is to serve. Simply put. What's interesting about this passage is, is that it actually speaks a good bit about our ambition. Right? Our desire for greatness. And notice that, that Jesus, he never actually condemns, condemns amb- ambition or desire. But what he does is he, he tries to, to channel it to where it should go. The the American culture, the culture that we find ourselves situated in, is is not different in some ways than Jesus' culture, right? Greatness was about authority or, or status or honor or wealth. So naturally, the pursuit of greatness was pursued through those means in Jesus' day, And it's pursued through those means in our day. But Jesus, he he takes that and he turns the whole model upside down. He says, that's not how we're measuring things here. He says, your greatness is about how you serve others. It's not about your title or your authority or your fame. So I want to ask for those of you who this may be the call to you, what... What does it look like for you to serve others? Who, who might God be inviting you to serve? Or maybe a harder question, are you pursuing kingdom greatness? I know some of y'all, y'all got, y'all got good jobs, right? Which isn't bad, right? Got education, which isn't bad. You have influence maybe in your neighborhood or in the city, that, which isn't bad. But if your ambition is about going towards those things for your gain, then you're not unlike James and John. So what, what would it mean for you to serve others on, on your, your FedEx route? What would it mean for you to serve others on sales calls? What would it mean for you to serve others when you have two screaming and frustrated NTI students? (laughs) What would it mean for you to serve others in your dorm or on your street, on your block? Or 2 a.m. when your newborn's screaming. Or in your community group. I think the invitation to you, which we forget that we can do this, is say, God, will you show me where and who to serve? That's an easy prayer. (laughs) But be careful, you might answer it, right? But ask the question, God, I, I am a servant, right? That's part of your identity as a Christian, as a Christ follower. You are a servant. So ask God, show me, reveal to me, where can I serve, God? As opportunities come up, help me to follow your leading. Now, I'm, I'm not saying go and, and do a bunch of stuff, like go and get involved in 10 nonprofit organizations, but ask where, where can I serve in the places I already am? At home, at church, at school, at my job, in my neighborhood. Where are places that I can serve right now? One of my favorite sections of, uh, of Scripture, Romans 12, Paul says, outdo one another in showing honor. He says, rather than competing with other people for titles, for positions, for power, what if you competed and raced to the bottom? What if you tried to outdo one another in honor and in love? That's what Paul says. So for some, the call is to service. For some... The call is to the source of our service, to Jesus himself. Look, some of you here today, stay with me. Some of you here today, you're tired, you're exhausted. I can see those eyes closing. You're worn out. Amen. I woke up four times. Thanks, baby coops in the back. But look, more than being sleepy, right? That's different than being tired. You're soul tired, right? None of us have lived through this, so deep in the core of your being, you are exhausted. If that's you, listen to me. If that's you, the call to you today is to run to the source of your service. Stop trying to do all this stuff and be with Jesus, right? That doesn't mean we don't do stuff. But as we say here, a lot of times, we haven't gotten our shirts yet, but maybe we'll order them soon. Our identity precedes our function. Who we are is more important than the things that we do. So as we think over the last few weeks in Matthew, right, all these stories are about people trying to do things for God to earn their position. The rich young ruler, right? We saw that wealth cannot earn our salvation, Jesus teaches in the parable of the vineyard workers that our working and our striving will not earn our salvation. It doesn't matter how early we show up. It doesn't matter if we've been in the church since we were five. Your striving does not earn your salvation. And then even today, we saw that titles and statuses and good seats in the place of honor, that does not earn your salvation. Look, Matthew 20, 28 is one of the key texts of Scripture and all of Scripture, and I've waited to unpack it because of how important it is. Jesus says, again, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. And this is the thing if you are tired, if your soul is worn out, if you're exhausted, depleted, Hear this: Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. This word "ransom" it actually it's not like a, a taken movie with Liam Neeson, right? Okay, that's not what it is. It's it's freeing somebody. It's paying a debt that somebody else owes to free them. It's liberation. It says here in this text that Jesus has paid the debt that you owe. You can't pay what He's already paid for. Look, if if you're tired, if you're worn out, if you're exhausted, odds are there's a part of you that's still striving to earn your salvation. You you don't feel like you're enough. Right now. So you're trying to measure up to God. <laughs> Which that's just not how it works. That's, that's exactly what we've learned, right? Maybe you're trying to, to pay your way into heaven like the rich young ruler. Or trying to earn God's grace by clocking in at six. Like the vineyard workers in the parable. Or you're trying to earn God's favor through all the things that come after your name. All of those things, right, all Matthew 19, 20, all those things that we've been learning over the last couple of weeks, they boil down to the fact that you cannot earn your salvation. And even for us who are confessing Christ followers, we still try to strive, right? I love what John said earlier, right? When we say Jesus paid it all, he said, <laughs> we say that, but then we're like, well, he didn't, he didn't cover this one, right? Let me take care of this. Jesus did and has paid it all, right? Look, if we we go out to eat and I pick up the bill, right, you're not going to give Denny's more money. That doesn't make sense. Sorry that we're eating at Denny's, but that's where we went. We wanted some Grand Slam breakfast. But that doesn't make sense, right? So why, why would you, you can't? If you can't pay a debt that's already been paid off for you, why are you still trying to pay it? Look, you've been freed, okay? Hear me. If you're in Christ, you have been freed. You have been liberated. So stop your striving. Stop your trying to earn. You've been freed by the blood of Christ, This is and it should always be our source of service. Commentator Donald English, uh, in his commentary on this text in Mark, he says, at the source of all Christian service in the world is the crucified and risen Lord who died to liberate us into such service. I love that. Jesus Says that through his life, death, and resurrection, he has liberated us to serve. If you remember um, back in our Philippians series, in Philippians 2, Paul talked about this path that Jesus followed, right? He talked about this downward trajectory that Jesus took. here's what he writes, and the encouragement is to us as well. He says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And what he had come as a man, he humbled himself By becoming obedient to the the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. Look, Jesus' exaltation, it came through his humiliation. His kingship actually came through his servanthood. His highness became through his lowliness. His crown, it came through the cross. If you're here today, you're tired, you're worn out, I don't care if you're a Christian or you're not a Christian. The invitation is to, to rest in the source of our service, in Jesus Christ, who, as he says, he, he came to serve, not to be served. If you're not a Christian here today, I, I encourage you to consider these truths. If you're tired, worn out, exhausted, you're tired of your striving, tired of, tired of your trying to earn it with volunteer hours or uh, promotions or Instagram followers, I don't know, whatever you think greatness is, that's not it. Jesus is our source. And as we see in 1 Timothy second 5 through 6, there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity. There's, there's one way. It's the man Christ Jesus. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. He gave his life as a ransom, as other translations say. That, that everyone is everyone. <laughs> it's me, it's you. It's the person next to you. It's the person down the street. He gave his life as a ransom for everyone. So I invite you to look to him today. If you want to talk more about that, to understand that, please come see me or Pastor James after the service. Be happy to talk with you more about what that looks like, to find Jesus as your source of rest. Look, every Sunday when we gather together, um, we take a, a meal called Communion. On this meal, it reminds us of Christ's suffering on our behalf. It also reminds us of the future kingdom when we will actually gather together around Christ's table and celebrate the work that he has done for us. My, I invite you, uh, there should be individual communion cups in your pew backs in front of you. And I invite you to grab those. So as, as the disciples, they were gathered around the table on Jesus last night with them. As they were eating, Jesus took bread. He blessed it and broke it. He gave it to the disciples and he said, take and eat. This is my body. So let's take and eat the bread together. That same night, um, Jesus took a cup, and after giving thanks, he said to his disciples, after giving it to them, he said, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which was poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So let's take and drink the cup together. Church, Paul tells us that when we take this meal together when we eat this bread and drink this cup, that we're actually pronouncing Christ's death until he returns. We're announcing to the watching world what Christ has done for us. As we turn to continue in worship, um, let me pray for us. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr. Lead Pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit SojournChurch.com backslash C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.